Hi, I'm Alan Alda, and I'm a guest on Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. you got to listen to this. They made me laugh. I laughed like this. Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Earwolf with our engineer Frank Ferderosa. Our guest this week is back for a return engagement. He's also returning with an all-new season of his hit game show, Deal or No Deal premiering on December 3rd on NBC with all new episodes on CNBC starting on December 5th. He's an actor, producer, voice actor, Emmy-nominated TV host, and one of the most popular stand-up comedians of his generation. As an actor, you've seen him in feature films like Little Monsters, Walk Like a Man, A Fine Mess, Gremlins, and Gremlins 2, playing everything from a monster living under a bed to a man raised by wolves. You also know his work in numerous TV shows such as Monk, Homicide, The Big Bang Theory, Superstore, My Name is Earl, and Bobby's World, which he also... Okay, enough already. Enough. (laughs) I'm Howie, and I'm here. Yeah. It's Howie Mandel. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) And I'm here with my friend. I just dropped in. Yes. Because I'm here with your ex-roommate, before Uh, you were married, John Mendoza, who is a legend in his own right. He is. In stand-up comedy. Welcome, John. Acting, yes. So we're both here together, and... uh, And it's. Uh, I know that I was the invited guest, but um, yeah, no, that, I was afraid it, I was going to be late, and John uh, rode along with me so we can be in a carpool lane. <laughs> Do they have that here in New York? In 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 the rickshaws in the bike, there had to be three of us in it. It's a three, or, or or you can't get in it. Wow. So we're here. Anyway, go ahead and ask. Now, now, the reason I'm back is because we didn't finish <laughs> the first time. There's so many more questions. So many, I left, people said, I heard you on Gilbert's uh, podcast. Did they really? Oh, yeah. And they Uh said, I said, did you like it? They go, well, there were so many unanswered questions. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm back to answer the questions. Well, at least ask him that last one, Gil. And we're just digging up guests that we already had because we're running out of people who want to do the show. What a wonderful welcome that is. Yeah, yeah. We're having three people who already died coming on next week. Fantastic. (laughs) Okay. At least ask him the last one. Oh, okay. The last one. Please welcome. This is our last... This is our last question. Yeah. Is he asking the last question he was supposed to ask you later? No, it's, or the, part, it's, the, last, it's the last line of the intro, but it's a question I think, it's something I think Gilbert will be interested in. Okay, oh. since... Frank obviously wrote part, the intro. <laughs> he loves his work. You don't think he did, do you? Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. Be, can, you, can you tell us what happened? We were waiting for you 
in the lobby. Can you tell us what happened? To oh, you? Yeah. yeah. This is what happens when you join. I, we're in New York. And obviously, uh, in New York, I think security in all the buildings is a little more heightened than in most states or most cities. And it is uh, customary to uh, show ID. And they sign in and they take a picture of you. So everybody was doing that. And then I walked up and I gave him my ID. And the guy goes, uh, hey, buddy, you need to take a picture. It's not like you're a movie star or anything. Who the fuck is going to know you? (laughs) So that is... God forbid anybody should get into an elevator with an assemblance of an ego. <laughs> you leave your ego at the front desk when you come to do this podcast. Uh, so basically, we, we invited you here to give you that final push if you ever think of suicide. <laughs> yes, that's yeah, what it is. Is, <laughs> That guy, and he never, he never, he just wow. looked at me like horribly. If you're ever pointing the gun to the roof of your mouth and you're not sure if you should pull the trigger... Show up here. Yeah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Is Dave working? (laughs) Oh, so... There is a question, right? So, since... You know what? A lot of people... (laughs) Yes. It'll be the question he never gets to. No, but I think it's good. Maybe we should just sit quietly. People don't do that on podcasts. This would be a first. (laughs) No, but it would be good, right? Silence is golden. Yeah. Uh, Most podcasts are constant talking or information or funny or informative. We should just sit with our thoughts. I think the listener should sit with their thoughts, and we're not going to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> the question was about an orgy. Was it about you performing stand-up? Yeah. That's a true story. Yeah. Do you know that story? Uh, no, no. Okay, so all of us, you know, I was just telling John the other day, you know, when, and we all started out in the 70s, and we were, uh, throughout our career, we play, like, not the best. Now people know stand-ups and they, you know, there are actual uh, stages built for stand-up and theaters, which are, but in those days, you wouldn't, you know, people just assumed you're a comic, you could show up, they would stop a dance floor in the middle of a yes, disco. yeah. How many times? They go, everybody, please sit down, yeah. stop dancing. Birthday parties, yeah, birthday weddings, par- yeah. So this is one I actually started, I was on a show called Sane Elsewhere. And I actually was on TV, and I had some a semblance of, uh, and I'd done an HBO special, and I I got a little bit of uh, recognition. And I got a call from the comedy store, and they said, uh, would you be interested in doing a house party? And I said, you know, at this point, I'm on TV and that. I'm, you know, there was a time when I would say yes to that. No. No. Yeah. And then the, the comedy store called me back, and they said they, they said that they really want you you're the guy's favorite, and uh, there's got to be a price. So I said, what does that mean? They go, make an offer, make a ridiculous offer. And I made a ridiculous offer, like much more than most people make in a couple of years in America. (laughs) And the guy hangs up the phone, and I get a call back 10 minutes later, and he goes, okay. They said, okay. I went, what? They said, okay, cash. So he hangs up the phone. He calls me back in five minutes. They go, he said, okay. Okay. I said, I, this is too fucking weird. Then I want the cash now. I want it before I ever show up. I want to see that this is real. He calls back in 10 minutes. Okay. Come in an hour to the comedy store. I go to the hour. I go to the comedy store and they have like a water. I needed a duffel bag to fill the duffel bag with all this cash. 
And I was going to play Friday night. I was going to go, and it was a guy's house. They said I was his favorite. And it was going to be a party, and I was going to be a surprise. So I said, okay. And I said to my wife, Terry, you want to, you wanna, uh, would you like to join me? And she said, no. And so I drove up Benedict Canyon. You got to know, you know, if you don't live in LA, we have these windy, shitty, dark roads that look like you're on a trail. And halfway up, it dawns on me, I'm going to be kidnapped. I'm going to be fucking kidnapped and raped <laughs> and killed and left in bushes. I don't know what this is for, but I got scared. And just as that, that was overcoming my whole being, right in front of me, a girl jumps out of the hedges scantily clad kind of dressed like a like a just in in under like a bra and panties and i go oh shit and she stops the car and and she comes around to my window and she goes are you howie mandel and i go yeah she goes this is the party i go what, what what's the party she goes i will take your car can you hear i open the window and you hear people uh, kind of screaming and laughing and things like that she goes the party's in there you're surprised just follow me and we'll go through the hedges. So now I'm in this dark place and we go through the hedges and I end up on this uh, uh, yard of a mansion. And I could hear there's a party going in and they go, you hide in here, you hide in here. <laughs> and when you hear, and it's the pool house bathroom, and when you hear, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel, then you come out. And this is the, like the early 80s. So I go into the bathroom and I'm, I've got my handbag and I've got my rubber gloves <laughs> and I've got all these ridiculous props, you know, little, little goofy things. And it's like a pool house bathroom. So it's like the toilet, my, my calf. I was trying everything for my calf not to touch the rim of the bowl. There was no room <laughs> for my props and me. As I'm setting up, the door opens and a guy comes in who is inebriated, who's drunk, and he just starts pissing. And he doesn't say hi to me. He doesn't even acknowledge that I'm there. We're shoulder to shoulder, you know? And I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on here? What is this? And he finishes pissing. He walks out of the room. He closes the door. And then I hear, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. <laughs> and I, I open the door and I walk into a room off the pool. There is the guy that just pissed and maybe five other guys in, all the other guys are naked. There's six women fucking and sucking and doing <laughs> shit like I've never seen in positions upside down. One guy's got, one guy's holding, uh, she's in kind of a 69 position. He's holding her upside down and he's eating her pussy. And as he eats her pussy, he's licking, and he looks up at me, and he goes, do, do, do the baby voice. Do the baby voice. I go, what? He goes, do the baby voice. And one guy is standing in the corner, and he's jerking off in one chick's ear. And I'm going, really? And I'm going, and the, there's oh a, the, the girl who took my car is now working at the bar. She goes, would you like a drink? And, and he's going... Do the thing, and one guy's getting sucked off, and he's going, do the do the thing about about coming from Canada. Do the, do the thing. And so I'm doing my act, and I think, I think I'm going to wake up. This is going to be a fucking dream. And then one of the guys brings over. He's carrying one of the girls. He goes, you want to suck this? And he, show, he puts her crotch in my face. I go, no, 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 no. <laughs> and uh, after 15 minutes, I, I say, good night. And I go back into the bathroom, and I put my props away and I and I kept thinking what if my wife said yeah I'd like to join you but, but, so anyway I leave and and I leave you know and I and I got a great story to tell about 
Two weeks later, I'm in the Galleria, which is a, which the mall in the valley in in uh, the San Fernando Valley. Oh, in Sherman Oaks. In Sherman yeah, Oaks, yes. I remember it. Yes. And um, I'm walking through the, the Galleria, and some nice lady just walks up to me, and she goes, are you Howie Mandel from St. Elsewhere? And I go, yeah. She goes, uh, y- y- you wouldn't know me, but my husband says that you were the entertainment at so-and-so's bachelor party. <laughs> and I look over her shoulder, and one of the guys who was eating pussy is about 100 <laughs> yards back going, like, just just uh, making the, uh, a sign, like, don't fucking say anything. Don't sh- just, boom, just, boom. So I wasn't entertainment as much as I was a cover story. Wow. So I was, they just had me there doing stupid voices so they could suck and fuck, and they had a thing, they each had a story without using any imagination about when their wives, would they went home to their wives, when they say, what, what was, how was the party? It was good. We had, we had Howie Mandel. <laughs> We love bizarre stand-up stories on this show. That's a good one. Is it? Yeah. I, think I was so. traumatized. You, you know, were? as a well, you I'm a germaphobe. Yeah, I'm a right. germaphobe. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure, yeah, there sure. was more fluid in that room. <laughs> there was more moisture. There was no I was getting standing ovations and not from their <laughs> legs. You know what I mean? More it was just so Seagill, you performed you went to the Playboy Mansion, nothing happened. Nothing. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. And really? I even went into the grotto. Did you, t- you went in the water? The le- no, no. Uh, but I walked in there, and we when I was, I heard with the Playboy Mansion, at one time it was exactly what you thought it was. And then somewhere along the way, it just changed. So I don't, I, there were some naked girls with body paint, but that was about it. Was that at the mansion yeah. in the grotto or no, on your way there? No, in my living room. Yeah, <laughs> I was just sitting around. Gilbert and I, I was telling John the other day, my, my best memories of Gilbert, we were friends in the, in the 80s. <laughs> Wait for this scared. Did we right segue? <laughs> no, 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 it's not that. It's not like that. that. <laughs> no, do you not remember, you and I used to go to the Carnegie Deli. I used to love yes. this. Oh. And at the Carnegie Deli, they always had the communal tables, which means, you know, we would sit down and we would take two seats and then, you know, tourists would be sitting at sure. the table or across from you. And nobody is better at Gilbert than telling the most horrific, if you've ever seen the, the aristocrat, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like that, telling the most. So he would sit down at the table, they'd have sandwich, you know, there'd be tourists taking pictures of their corned beef and the pastrami, and they'd be eating, and he'd sit down and loud, you would start saying, <laughs> I don't believe. know, there's a, a seepage from my anus. <laughs> and that's how it starts. And you would hear, you know, uten- utensils, forks being dropped, and these people, and they're right in your face. Do you remember doing that? Yeah. Yes, yes. And it, they were just horrified. You'd see people take a bite, and you would, like, time it. And this is a person sitting with their family having a night, a nice lunch at the most renowned deli. And do you remember doing that? Yes. And I was like, die. I would die. And we couldn't laugh because he'd make it like a serious conversation. Yes. Yeah, and I'd say, I think there's a log of shit floating in my cream soda. How that got there. But th- it's not funny on a podcast as much as it is. No, just looking at funny. The, just looking at somebody's face who's just trying to have a nice meal. It's their first time in New York. They've never even sat at a communal table, and there's the cute little Gill sitting there going, "Somebody shit in my cream soda." <laughs> 
And these, they're, uh, yeah, it is. It's their big moment in New York because, oh, we got to go to the Carnegie Deli. You yeah. Know, it's, uh, but that yeah. was my best, that my memories of the Carnegie Deli are only you and only the most vile stories in the faces of innocent <laughs> tourists. Do you remember meeting him for the first time? Or seeing him perform for the first time? Yeah, I, to, uh, I do. I, uh, the first time I saw you was at Catch a Rising Star. And I think we talked about that. You know, you you are the epitome. And I, I, I think I said this when you were out and uh, promoting your documentary, which I absolutely love. One of my favorite oh, great films job, of the Neil. year. It's amazing. Yeah, it's great. But it also showed a side of uh, Gilbert that every, if you're listening to this, and obviously you'd be a fan of Gilbert, if you're listening, but maybe you didn't see it, you have to catch it and tell a friend because even if you don't Absolutely. know Gilbert, it's Gilbert, one of- throw the plug in. Oh, it's called Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by Neil Berkeley. Yes. yes, and I think it's on Hulu. Yes. So, yeah. There, we, there you go, Dara. But got what, I, what I loved about Gilbert and when I when the first time I saw him is between, and I'm not just, Blowing smoke up your ass, which sounds like a conversation you would have with me at the Carnegie Deli. But, but I'm not just blowing cum up your ass. <laughs> I'm sucking it out. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the when I first went to the comedy store in '78 and '79, I was bowled over by watching um, Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. and Richard Pryor was the first person that I ever recognized, you know, honesty in as far as like he would find that line and cross that fucking line and it was dangerous. And sometimes the um, the audience would gasp at whatever he was talking about, you know, because he talked about growing up in a brothel. Sure, this but- means nothing now in 2018, but growing up in a brothel and fucking and sucking. He had a, yeah, he had a tough life. Hard he had childhood. a tough life, but he was honest yeah. and he was brave. And then not until I went to New York and saw Gilbert on stage, you know, that stuff, It came. there came a time when I think we got used to that kind of stuff. But even you doing, uh, uh, one of the first things I remember recognizing was, you know, Christ on the cover of TV Guide. Yes. You know? <laughs> I don't even know that bit. Oh. oh, he would stand with the with the mic stand. Oh. And he'd, and he'd, he'd do a crucifixion on I've stage. I've seen stills of it. Okay. So, but but the point, the point being that that may not seem like what it was then, but in 78, I mean, that was blasphemy yeah. to be talking about religion, for a Jewish guy to be talking about Christ, for, you know, and, and I thought, oh, my God, this guy doesn't have any, you know, there's no um, governor on his engine. He will just go anywhere. <laughs> no, but I, and I love that. And that's why I wanted to be his friend. And that's why I watched everything he did. And he was, and when you watch the documentary, yeah. you see that he'll push it farther and I thought that that was the job. He's an inspiration to me because I believe through Richard Pryor and Gilbert Godfrey, that was the job, the art form of comedy. The art form of comedy is pushing that barrier. In fact, when you're not a comedian and you cross that line, you used to be able to say the biggest excuse was, I was only joking. And people, oh, okay. As long as you're joking, you're okay. Because that was the world if you're joking, that is the world that you're okay. You can step further. And we were professional jokers, so we were supposed to find that line, step over it, and then maybe figure out where it is. And today, you know, I feel, and and there are days that I get up, and you were on the opening wave of this. 
you know, where I go, I don't want to do this oh, anymore. Oh, for political correctness. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard you just, say it's, make, it's, it's taking the fun out of comedy. It, it's t- not even the fun out of comedy. It's just not, we're not even allowed to do that art form. You're not allowed to. You know, the, the repercussions are so fucking, and you can't figure out where that, where that line is, you know? And the point is that we, in, when him and I started, the beauty of it is even when we knew what the line was, it was kind of sexy and fun to cross that line. You wanted to do that. You were saying it because it was wrong. That's what we were, that's the art form. Mm -hmm. It was wrong. And that's why it was too soon. And that's why we can do it. And today I can't fucking figure it out. And uh, Gilbert himself has been a victim of that, which is, I think is totally wrong. And, uh, you know, it makes me sometimes want to just hang up my hat and say, I don't want to do comedy. What anymore. do you say, Gil? Everybody, everybody now has the, uh, wants oh, to be offended. I, yeah. Everyone I, wants to I be a victim. Think, yeah. I think they enjoy being offended. It's like like they feel good about themselves. Like, oh, I was outraged. What, because it that. allows them to participate in some way? Yeah. It's like, well, I, I always say, like, uh, the the internet makes me feel sentimental about old-time lynch mobs. <laughs> at least they had to get their hands dirty and deal with other people. Now anybody, you sit in your underwear at home and you form your own little lynch mobs. Right. You know, they they call it social media. You know, in our early days, media, this is before us, probably our parents' days, you know, the media wore a, a fedora and they had a, a card on it that said press. Yes. You know, yes. or they had a job. Yes. All of a sudden, you're sitting, as you said, alone in your underpants and you don't have a friend in the world, but you are media. You're part of the social media. And, and I remember growing up, there were commentators, columnists, reporters, writers and you know people who knew stuff and you listen to them because they knew they were authorities yeah yeah now everybody's an authority i'll tell you a little story not only are they an authority it's hard you can't read so i'm not going to mention who and i'm not going to mention where but you know while i'm in new york i go drop up in clubs i tell you last time i was here i did it with you and and gilbert and you just want to try out material so i went on (laughs) and i followed a a comic who was, I thought, very funny, young, very young. His audience was there, is, uh, and he's a, a very liberal um, gay comic, and uh, most of his routine was, you know, a lot of the routine when I, when I was there was going to CVS and looking at other guys and wanting to eat out their asses and how he was jealous of the toilet paper they were buying because he wanted to lick out their asses. And the audience is going crazy. He finishes and they go, and now Howie Mandel. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. I walked out and I think the first line is I said, you know, my wife has been a real bitch. And the whole audience goes, (gasps) and I'm telling you, there was a tweet storm saying he's calling a woman a bitch in this day and age. And I got like smacked around on social media He's eating fucking ass. And I called the woman who I love and I've been married to for 40 years in the frame of a joke, a bitch. And that was and and such indignant. And you could hear it in the room. They just stopped. As soon as I referred to a female as a bitch, 
and somebody I love and respect yes. and adore on the, in the context of being on stage and doing a bit, it was over for me. And I couldn't grab that audience. Very so you don't know how and who and when you're going to offend and what those repercussions are. And it's funny. It's like you could right now go on like Twitter or whatever and say, I like eating jelly beans. And a bunch of people will be offended by that. It, you can't win. Yeah. But you really, you haven't softened anything. I mean, no. I saw you about a year ago. You're still doing the Chinese delivery boy. <laughs> he still is the only working comic today doing, you know, Jerry Lewis Chinese. No, I, not Asian the Jerry stereotypes. Lewis. I did the Mickey Rooney. Or the Mickey Rooney at <laughs> Breakfast at Tiffany's. How does so that he's go? still taking chances. Oh, no, it's, it, it's in the middle of a whole bit. It, it, oh, yeah. It's but, part of a bit about hating the Amish, right? And yeah. All, and all yeah. That stuff. But he's still doing it. The Amish don't the get envelope. it. The, the Amish don't seem to get offended. <laughs> <laughs> They're not on Facebook either. <laughs> <laughs> John, you've been doing stand-up a long time. You agree with Howie? You think some oh, of the fun's gone brutal. out of it? It's You know, it's harder for him than for me. Because I'm not as famous as he is, and I'm not on, I don't have as much to lose at the moment as he does. He's on, you know, network television, and he could lose his job like that. You know, I could go out and I could say a bunch of stuff, and, you know, I might offend people. I might get hit on Twitter or whatever the next day. It's not that big of a deal. He's got a lot to lose by those situations, like you did. You a lot, yeah. It's a lot of freaking money. It's a lot of, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but you know, I don't know what Louis C.K. has been doing for the last year. <laughs> you know, I mean, what do you do after after your you know fame and fortune and stuff like that? You, even just to go out and do five minutes at night and just have some fun and get out of the house, he can't do that anymore. He's, tr not, he's trying. He's done a couple yeah, yeah, of little yeah, short, I mean, short it's, sets it's, in recent it, weeks. It's a year of you months. know. Does he work out for a year or does he get really fat for a year? You know, it's 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 a, it's a hard time for someone that. When when there's a lot of money involved, it's it's very very difficult. I mean, I saw you do shit in the seven in the in the early eighties and stuff like that. That if you would have done that today, you would have been dead. But there is <laughs> yeah. a difference. Yeah. Yeah. There is a difference between what somebody does in their real life off stage and what you do on stage, or what you do in social media. You know, like Gilbert got in trouble for what he did in social media. Mm -hmm. But but for me also, social media is our new stage. So we mm -hmm. need to to stay prevalent. We need, if something funny happens, you know, I have an idea right there and, you know, I'll videotape something and then they'll go, no, 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 don't, don't that could be yeah. construed. And the, the beauty of what I love about you, Gilbert, and you always did, it's like, you know, I, I I say that everything I've ever been punished for, expelled for, hit for is what I seem to get paid for. The thought is you shouldn't have to worry in, in comedy. You shouldn't have to worry about the ramifications, the worst ramification in comedy. And that's our that's how we figure out how to shade it is silence is like somebody won't laugh. But you should just be able to say freeform whatever comes into your head. You should have that knee-jerk reaction. It shouldn't be you. the sense of humor. It is a sense. You should find humor where other people wouldn't. And now it's a dying art. And, you know, it's funny because all this political correctness, the, the young people that are dying in our military, what are they f dying for? Freedom of speech. Yeah. And one of the most freeing speeches ever are the words that are coming out of the mouths of comedians it's true let's yeah. take a moment of silence <laughs> <laughs> that's very poignant 
Is you know, that too heavy for? Do you do you do you get in trouble for anything you're doing in in uh, in your? Well, set? he's married. Yeah. Yeah. I, know yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. There's one joke Dara can't stand. If she'll, if she'll allow, she's nodding from the next room. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah but no, it it is like that. It is a crazy time period. I don't know if we'll ever come out of it. Well, that's it. Yeah. You know, you say there's one joke that Dara can't stand. My wife. My wife mm-hmm. knows that I will. On stage, speak inappropriately about her. She she chooses not to attend my show. Oh, interesting, but because she goes, if I'm attending the show, then when you say something, I know it's a joke. I get it. My discomfort is that I'm standing beside a friend, or I'm standing beside a family member, or somebody's kid is there, and as soon as you mention my name or how we fuck or whatever, they are looking at me. And yes. I didn't sign up to be on stage. I didn't sign up to be the performer. So why do I need to be embarrassed by it? I'm not telling you not to say it. I'm telling you I will not be there. You certainly respect her position. And, She's a smart. And I, oh, this happened to me recently. This is a weird one. My wife got mad at you yeah, too? Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I, I fucked her in a new position. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Because she got tired of the same one over and over. Take the glove off. She was was so sick of the missionary each time. It was nice to finally have somebody who will use his hands. (laughs) I, I was at a club. And I was doing, you know, I wasn't watching anything, so I was making jokes about midgets, and I was... Uh, <laughs> midgets have no right to yeah, live, right? Yeah, Is that yeah the bit? pretty much, yeah, yeah. 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 You I know that, that, first of all, they don't want to be called midgets. <laughs> oh, he, yeah. He does it on this show every week. It's hopeless, Howie. And and so, I do jo- and I did some jokes about muscular dystrophy, and this is absolutely true. And, I mean, while I was doing it, you could feel a real tension in the air and people murmuring and not... Was this a fundraiser for midgets with muscular (laughs) dystrophy? Well, that's the funny thing. (laughs) At the end of the show, I'm standing there, like, signing merchandise or what's stuff, and these two electric wheelchairs Uh. come out... And two, what I would refer to as midgets, were in these electric wheelchairs. Like, you know, where you you could basically blow into it to go forward or or go against. Oh, my God. Do you fuck one? Look at you. All of a sudden, you've become a prop comic. Yes. (laughs) And the funny thing was. The funny thing. I I figure they're going to go over and say, that was really wrong what you did. That was and they wanted to have their picture taken with me. And they said, they said, both of us have muscular dystrophy. And we were laughing our asses off. That was so funny. So they wanted something to Well, laugh here's at. the, so this is, this kind of stamps what m- my opinion is. They need, listen, for me, and now that I've known you, you know, laughter and comedy is what is my panacea. You know, that's how I get through shit. And, you know, there's a T-shirt that says shit happens. We all have fucked up shit in our life. I suffer from anxiety and depression. And if you look at what comedy really is, even in the most basic form, if you're 
if if you're a kid and you go to the circus and you laugh at a clown falling down, you're laughing at the misfortune. It always comes from darkness. So to have a sense of humor, you know, isn't somebody who says, who has a joke and they know the cadence of the joke and they laugh. It's like clapping along with a song. They laugh at the end of a joke. They go, oh, that's a joke. It's being able to find the levity in something really dark. So you're telling me that these two people had a sense of humor because they need to have a sense of humor. They can't change the position. The person that will be most offended not only is not a little person with this affliction, they probably don't even know a little person with this affliction, yet they'll bear the burden of being, you know... uh, Caretaker. Well, and also being offended. Why the fuck are you offended? Well, it's just wrong. On their behalf. You know, it's just wrong. In fact, like going back to the story I just told you, the guy that was tweeting about me calling my wife a bitch was a guy. It wasn't even a woman. You know, so I can see that, you know, maybe if a woman has been called a bitch and this brought up some bad, I kind of get it, you know, and I kind of get that it's not right to refer to somebody as a bitch. That's why it's funny. Yes. And the reason that your story is funny, it's taboo. If it wasn't taboo, then it wouldn't be funny. So they have a sense of humor. And the rest of the audience, whoever didn't like it or disliked it or got up and walked out or hated that, don't have a sense of humor. And there's this thing, too, it's like, um, well, it's also a thing of patting themselves on the back. Like, I've just been offended by something, and that makes me good. Right. Yeah. It's like... um, they, you know, it's like if a tragedy occurs, you could send money or you could fly out and help with the effort or you could get offended at a joke someone makes. Yeah, I believe that. And most people who are in our business, and I can speak to I, 40 years, I know John, I know you, I know everybody. You're in the pro- business? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> are probably the most sensitive people I know. You know, these people that proclaim to be sensitive, we're probably 10 times more sensitive than them. You know, you were asking me, Frank was asking me before the show, can we talk about, I got to work with the great Blake Edwards. Mm -hmm. And I quoted a story that he once told me, which rang true, I think, for everybody sitting in this room. And this I'll never forget. He told this story about this, um, this guy that was suffering such amazing depression amazing depression. He had been going to his therapist forever and he was at his wits end and he was about to put the gun into his mouth and shoot up, shoot his head off. And the uh, the therapist had tried drug therapy. Drug therapy did not work. You know, then the therapist brought in a hypnotist. The hypnotism didn't work and everything didn't work. And the guy shows up in the office and he goes, that's it. I just can't deal with this uh, depression, this sadness, this darkness. I'm going to end it, and I just wanted to say that I appreciate all the help that you tried to give me, but I'm going to, I'd rather be dead. I cannot do this anymore. And the uh, the therapist said, can you just try one more thing? One more thing. And he goes, well, what, what, what is it? They said, the uh, there's a circus that just came to town, and in this circus, the star of the circus is this Blabbo the Clown. And Blabbo the Clown is this world-renowned clown who just makes people laugh. So people have died from laughter. Nobody cannot laugh 
This is the place, and they say that laughter is the best medicine. Regardless of what's going on, if you can laugh, that's it. I believe there is no medicine strong enough. There's no hypnotism strong enough. If you go see Blabbo the Clown, he will make you laugh, and I believe that that'll make you feel better. And this guy is sitting in the corner of the office in the fetal position, and a tear runs down his cheek, and he looks at the therapist, and he said, I am Blabbo the Clown. You know, that's just who I think is a great template of who comedians are. You know, I think that people who have the view and are able to look and find another, a bright side to a dark world are the people that are in touch. When he says something about, and when I say he, I'm pointing at Gilbert, when you talk about somebody's misfortune in life, there's nobody more aware of that person's misfortune than Gilbert. And because he's so aware and so sensitive to that misfortune is why he knows how taboo it is to speak of it. When he's talking about his wife in an uncompromising position, he knows that the woman you love and you care about and is the other side, he knows when you don't have any feeling and you don't and you are numb, like I think most of the world is, you don't know. So you just hear the the headline and you go, that's that is so offensive. That is so wrong. Nobody understands how wrong and offensive it, it is than the guy that is making the, the joke the, about the it. The person motivated to get on stage in a room full of strangers and actually say this thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to blow your, your, your image, Gilbert, but he is nothing like that. Like that, that uh, deeply offensive person. No, people who really know <laughs> Gilbert know that he is a six-foot-tall Mexican woman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like you think. What I, what I mean is that you know, there's, a, there's a kindness and a sensitivity to him that I don't think he, yeah, he but, but wants if you really people to watch, know. And, and that's why I was so happy that this documentary came out. Because yeah, you, you see it in the doc. But then you yeah. understand it. That it's yeah. not when he tells a joke that is wrong. It's because nobody knows how wrong that image is more than him. Right. And no one's as damaged as him, so you feel better. <laughs> and, and what what I always get is like when people ask me and they'll say, uh, how could you make a joke like that? Aren't you aware of the tragedy and loss of life? And I always say, yeah, I, I am aware of the tragedy and loss of life. And that's where the joke comes from. That's what we can't get people to understand. Yeah. I think what people without was, go ahead. No, I was just to say I think one of the things that people reacted to about the doc was to see that he wasn't this monstrous person who just does these jokes to hurt people. That he's actually. But even if they learn that, our world today doesn't understand right. where human where humor comes from True. and where that sensibility of finding. You know, there is no such thing as you know. Comics always say too soon. It should be now. There's no too soon. And, and I also feel like when you say a bad taste joke right when it happens, uh, the reason there shouldn't be an apology is like the apology and explanation are in the joke because you're laughing because you, and when people laugh at it, they go, oh, my God, I shouldn't be laughing because this is so horrible, the subject matter. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast 
right after this. That's what you say. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Betty Davis back from the dead, post-stroke still. That's the way it is in the afterlife. It doesn't get any better. But you are listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. Now I'm going back into my coffin and I'll see you in another year. We now return to the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Collecting! I have to tell you, my, my family shares, uh, you know, I, I come from a family that's got a really good sense of humor. The worst day of my life, in the history of my life, is the day I buried my father. And I, I, I will tell you that there isn't a day that I've laughed harder in my life than the day I buried my father. So many uncomfortable, horrible shit was happening, and the only way that I could deal with it was crazy laughter. I mean, it, and it was. I mean, I was making jokes, which I would imagine would be considered wrong if other people, but I was surrounded by my family. The people who didn't know me and heard me laughing hysterically in the other room, and I couldn't stop, thought I was wailing and screaming in torment and didn't know that I, you can't believe what happened to me. That's how you got through it. By, like by, about by, horrible by things. laughing at the... Well, he had, he had a really good... Well, I'll tell you one story. He had a really good friend who came and he was talking to me. We went, we, I buried him and then we went back to their apartment and uh, this guy's talking to me and then I see him start to quiver and I thought he was going to pass out and he started walking out of the room and I thought he dropped uh, uh, candy out of his pocket. So I went, you know, hey, 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 hey. So I walked over and I picked up the candy that he dropped. He didn't drop a candy out of his pocket. He shit himself and he shit on the floor in my parents' apartment and I had picked it up and it was in my hand and I had this guy's shit. I buried my father and my hand is filled with this guy's shit who I found out later had Crohn's and he couldn't help what was happening. But I smelled it and then I screamed like a little girl. I started screaming and my mother goes, what's wrong? And I go, and that guy ran and I got shit all over my hand and my mom, my mom picked up all the the schnapps and the, the alcohol that was there and she's pouring it over my hand and she's screaming and I'm screaming and he shit on my hand and the other people are sitting in the other room and going, oh, such a poor boy. And I'm going... <laughs> and I couldn't get the shit off my hand. And so I buried my father. Guy shit all over the fucking apartment. My fingers were filled with his shit. I have never picked up anything since from the ground. <laughs> it's like your dad's parting gift in a way. But I said that. I yeah. said that. I yeah. said he's watching. That's he did great. the worst. That's my dad would do something like That's that great. to me. But that, but that was the thing, you know. And you know that anybody else would just say, "That's fucking horrific. That's horrific. Yes. On top of horrific." 
But, you know, I just told you the story that the, the moment I buried my father and somebody took a shit with Crohn's disease and listened to you laugh. I get it. Somebody else might think that that's a terrible, terrible story. I thought it was amazing. John, did you ever tell a joke and get in trouble for it or the joke was complete, the meaning was completely misconstrued? Oh, constantly. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are fun moments. I love telling I, I love telling jokes that, that that people go, What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> and I, I have a teenage daughter and I do that to her in life and it's I I don't know are you girls teenage are you girls a teenager yet? Uh she's eleven. Yeah. Yeah. So, wait, wait, it's yeah. horrible. They 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 judge you so much and Yes. And you go I, I, I did a story with my daughter recently. I said to her, I said I bumped into your friend Jason at the mall the other day. And she said, which one? I know five Jasons. I said, the gay guy that you hang out with. And she said, you can't call him gay. She went crazy on me, screaming and yelling at me. And then like a couple of weeks later, I bumped into a friend Amy at the mall. I said, I saw your friend Amy at the mall. She said, which one? I said, the one with the blue shirt. <laughs> you, can't, you can't you can't the audience is your family is 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 horrible and as far as judging you and well stuff like i've that. i've come to the point yeah. where as i said i've wanted to, i do want to hang up my hat and in traditional stand-up comedy but what i do love when i'm not recognized like the guy who let me into the building today <laughs> no but i do i love um, awkward. I love uh -huh. uncomfortable. And I love when somebody doesn't know I'm joking. That's why I reminisced about the time sitting in the Carnegie Deli with you. When they don't know that we're two comedians just laughing at the fact that it's disgusting and we're ruining everybody's lunch. When you watch somebody looking at you in disgust. When you look at somebody across the room that's going, what the fuck is going on? What the hell is this? What did he just say? I almost find that more uh, fulfilling well, than a laugh. You're a person who's who's turned on sort of by extremes in life. You like roller coasters. You like to feel fear. Yes. You like things that remind you that you're alive. Yes. Yeah. Adrenaline. Uh, yeah, and that's one of them, right? Yes. That kind of but that kind of awkwardness. It was fun in the early '80s watching Gilbert paint. I mean, he would go on stage at like one o'clock in the morning, I two o'clock in the morning, and you would sit in the back of the room and watch this guy just throwing shit up against the wall, and you would just sit there and go, this is so much fun, just watching this guy make up stuff, and, and the next night, you know, one line out of that whole thing became a little tighter. I mean, we all did that and stuff like that. But watching him do it, there was nobody better. But he better. would swing harder than anybody oh, else. Oh, God, it was, it was disgusting some nights. You would sit there and you would go... And <laughs> In then, a great way. And then you'd have to follow this shit. You know, and he'd grab his little stick and he'd walk, well, good night, and he'd walk. And, you know, and now John Mendoza, fuck. It was horrible following him. Following was probably horrible, but watching was... It was uh, brilliant to I watch. I still don't see anybody even close to what he did. There was no one better that could tell a long joke, an old joke, oh, yeah. do an impression than Gilbert Gottfried. Yep. There was absolutely nobody. And milk it. And milk the and shit out of it. You talk about keep, milking it. Keep spinning it. it and topping it. Yeah. You know what it is? I say this on America's Got Talent, and the truth is, and, and I, I think Gilbert taught me this, but it's commit commit to whatever it is you own what you're going to do even if what you're going to do you're not like anybody else even if you're going regardless i, I don't care who, who's ever listened you're going to open up a business you're going to dress a certain way just fucking own it and commit and go as far as you can when you make a decision 
if you're trepidatious and you hold back, nobody's really going to buy into whatever style you created, sure. whatever business you're going to do. And it, it, the same rules apply to stage, to life, Go all in. to relationships, to everything. You just got to own it. You do you. We were allowed to fail, which in today's world in comedy, a lot of kids are not allowed to fail. You were able to go up there and bomb and and be asked back again the next night. It was not that, that big of a deal. Now, these if you don't bring 25 people to a club to, to fill a room or something like that and get the other people laughing, you're not asked back again. There were many, many nights where we'd go on stage and, and, and you'd walk off stage and the audience would go, you could hear him as you walked through. He sucked. You know, yeah, and it was fine. You you came back the next night, and you sucked a little bit less the next night, and the next night after that, it doesn't exist. It, I I don't see it now. That was part of the process. That the was bom- part of the, the bombing process. was part of the growth process yeah. and part of building your act. And, yeah. and building now, your, your- when you go up on stage, you see a bunch of little white lights all over the oh, place yeah, with yeah. people with their phones. Yeah, and then the, and that's dangerous. You know, uh, Chappelle, you know, makes you lock up the phones. You know that. Yeah. He's got the he's got those sacks that they give out, which is important because what happens is that those phones they'll record for a second, they'll take a picture, they write whatever you said. There's no, you know that. Even if you text somebody, there's no context. There's no context, and when there's no context and there's no meaning, some things not heard from a comedy stage, but repeated or out of context where you didn't see what happened before, you didn't see what happened after, or you're not in the flow, could come off very damaging. I'm very afraid of that. And that's another reason. And like John says, you know, I'm on America's Got Talent, a great broadcast family show. I'm about to launch one of the biggest things I've ever done in my career. I'm about to do Deal or No Deal. It's coming back. There's 34 episodes. It's going to be huge and bigger than ever. Another very clean-cut family show with a, a, a great network. I have to be, and I love it, and I love doing both those shows every time, and I love doing stand-up, but every word that comes out of me, even the things that I'm, I'll be totally honest with you, talking to you right now, I'm wondering and I'll let you do whatever you want, but I'm wondering if some of the things I've talked about or some of the things I've said will be construed wrongly and hurt me. You know, it can. You almost just want to shut up. I fucking hate mime. I want to be a mime. It's the safest (laughs) thing to do. I want to be a mime. I want to be trapped in a fucking box on a windy day. And I I don't, I hate it. But, you know, it's very scary talking publicly. We're not just sitting at dinner. This is, you know, I know this podcast, you, there's maybe 20, 30 people that'll hear this. At least. <laughs> maybe 40. I just hope each and every one of them likes me and doesn't uh, get me to lose a job. Quick question about Deal or No Deal. You turned it down uh, when they first approached you. What, 2005? Yes. Yeah. And you did not want to do a game show because you thought a game show was a career killer. It was. In 2005, if you remember, no comic was doing game you know the the closest to a com- you know, years and years before that uh decades before that groucho, groucho right and so did uh johnny carson did a, a right who a, do you a, trust yeah who do you trust but after that nobody did it and when your currency is irony you know the last you know the, not that there's anything wrong with them but 
that would be, you know, uh, the punchline would be the consummate game show host. So when they asked me to do a game show, I went, no. Then they called me back and they said, come on, you're perfect for this. And I said, no. And then the third time they said, well, can we show you the game? And I go, you know what? I'm not, I'm sitting in a deli in the Valley. I'm not going to, if they want to come and show me the game, I'm eating soup if they want to. And, and then I thought it was a joke. The guy shows up with this, it looks like a card. He cut out himself. He didn't go to even Kinko's or, and there's no fucking game. There's no game. I'll open this, I'll open that, I'll open this. And then I went home and Terry, my wife, said, are you going to do it? And I went, no. And she goes, why? I said, because it's going to kill my career. She goes, where'd you just come from? I said, the uh, deli. And where are you now? I said, at, at home. And she goes, this is your career right now. So just do it. <laughs> so I did it. I was really embarrassed. Oh, and then I said to them, can I hire a comic? Can I hire a friend to write with me? Because then I thought, you know, it's nothing. It's opening these cases. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I thought, be funny. I'll be funny. And, yeah. and they, it was unprecedented at the time. At an NBC, they were going to do uh, five nights in primetime. Five hours of fucking primetime NBC given over to this game. And I said, well, so m- me and my friends, we wrote. I said, you know, if nothing else, even if it's a shitty game, I got some funny bits. I'm going to do some funny bits. And then I'll never forget, I came out and they said, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And I walked out and said, welcome to Deal or No Deal. And I said, here's our first contestant. Never forget her. Her name's Karen Van. And Karen Van walks out and I'm within, I'm closer to her than I am to you guys right now. And I realized when somebody's on a set that hasn't been on a set, there was a glaze that came over her. You know what I mean? There's 12 cameras, 300 people, all of the lights. She tells me she's never owned a home. She doesn't have health insurance. These are her three children. And I realized, oh my God, if she walked out of here with 20 grand, it would change her life. She's not from New York. She's not from LA. She could put a down payment on the house. If nothing else, she can get insurance. So she's taken care of. I was so afraid to do my comedy because I wanted to distract her. It changed my cadence. In fact, on SNL, they did a takeoff of me because I talked to her like you talk to a four-year-old because I saw she wasn't listening. So I would say, you know, the banker just called. The offer is, Karen, the offer is... $40,000. $40,000. And really what I was just saying is, listen to me. That's real. That's 40. You could say deal right now. 40 fucking thousand dollars is yours for nothing. No skill, no trivia, no nothing. That's yours. Or if you say no deal, it's like spinning the wheel. You got a chance. You got to open up five more cases. What the fuck are you thinking? You know? So it, it became about you realized you, know, you had a, a responsibility. Well, first to help to well, help first to help these people. Right. <laughs> well, first I'm a human being. Right. Not people. Then I'm a wife. I mean, I'm, I have a wife and children. I'm a right. parent. I just want, I, and I don't want to be responsible. You know, they always ask me to go on Hollywood Game Night, which I don't go on because it's on NBC. Because I don't want to be silly and somebody loses money and then I'll kill myself if I feel that somebody <laughs> didn't win because I was being an idiot. So, so empathy was first. So I I did the shows through all comedy by the wayside, flew out to the Caribbean because when it aired, I was going to be so embarrassed and it was going to be the end of my career. And I got a call saying this thing went through the roof. And the next night and the next night, the next thing I know, they're going after every comic on every oh, show, yeah. right? Saget. You, Saget uh, Foxworthy. Foxworthy, yeah. Saget. I think yeah. Steve Harvey owes me a big yeah, thank Steve you. Steve Harvey, yeah. You sort yeah, of broke that glass did, ceiling. Did you host a game show? I'm I'm sure the, the phone in my house has been just... How much would you give to see yeah. Gilbert host a game oh. show? Yeah. <laughs> I think he'd be great. Yeah. I think he'd be great. 
Now, and how do you feel when you watch someone lose? It's the hardest thing in the world. It's hard when you're standing there and you know what it, and you really know what it means to somebody and you're watching them. You know, we are comedians. And part of what makes us comedians is we have, it could be considered annoying, but it, and, it, and I was most of my life and offstage I am, a, uh, an insatiable desire to comment on the innatities of life, right? Of, of, if you see something stupid, you want to say it's stupid. If you see something going on, you have to say it. Like it's the, right? Yes. We're yeah. basically critiquing in the form of comedy. So when I'm watching somebody make a bad decision or they're going for, they're being greedy or they're just risking too much and they can't afford to, it takes every ounce of my being not to want to throttle them and go, you fucking, it. what are you doing? You have children. This is a hundred thousand dollars. You live in uh, in the outskirts of Omaha. You could not only put a down payment, you probably could buy an entire house. This is two years of your pay. Take it. Why are you taking the chance? You know, I, I've always, I'm very conservative. I don't gamble. I don't, uh, when I play Vegas, I never play, you know, the games. And I've always been taught that if you're going to invest or you're going to gamble, then you should be able, it shouldn't change your life if you lose. These decisions are changing people's lives. And what really gets me is I think that most of our contestants, and you'll see in this bigger, newer, more exciting uh, game of Deal or No Deal, which premieres on NBC December 3rd and then goes to CNBC on December 5th as a series, but there's a Christmas special December 3rd on NBC, you'll see that in their guts, people know what the right move is, and then they get swayed by the audience, by a loved one, by a friend. Interesting. You know, and when they go with that, I think there's an interesting show, as John's always said, you should be in the car ride home. Why the fuck did you tell me to go one more time? (laughs) That's a history of Canadian game show hosts, too. Monty Hall, Alex Trebek, you're in that fraternity. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. It's interesting to see somebody be so get so personally involved in the in the personal fortunes of the uh, of the contestants. That, well, that you, I think this you, goes back. This is the circle of this whole discussion. It's empathy. It goes back to the most sensitive people I yeah, know, and the the most uh, delicate people I know as far as sensitivity are comics. And the harsher those comics are, the more sensitive they are when you get to know them. They don't want you to know them. They usually hide because that's fear and sensitivity hurts and being attached to your public and being attached to people. You know, we have a, a small circle of family and friends and that we get attached to and hopefully who surround us with love and we coddle them and we stay. When you when you look at Gilbert as a, as a son and as a brother, there's nobody better. You go to other people who are offended by these words and they haven't talked to a sibling. They don't talk to their parents. They've, uh, they've left their, their wives. But you go talk to somebody who speaks harshly and they're the ones that when you look at what life really, what really matters, they're the ones that take care of business the best way possible. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. How about that, Gilbert? Yeah. This has turned into a testimonial. I, I know. This is <laughs> I'm I'm waiting to see myself lying in a casket. <laughs> <laughs>
Is this the word? Is this the worst episode yet? No, no, no it's different. Terrific. Very interesting and per- and 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 honest. Tell us one thing about Norman Lloyd, about working with the great Norman Lloyd. I who, just saw who, him. I just who, had we lunch. can't get to do this show. By the way, we just had his twice. birthday. Hundred and hundred four. Hundred and four. Just stopped playing tennis. Like three years ago. Judd Apatow told us he was, up until like a year ago, he would drive himself to the set, that he was still yeah. driving. Yeah, so Judd, because he knows that I worked with him, Judd took me and, and Norman to lunch. I went two weeks ago to lunch with Norman. I said to Norman, um, like, why did you stop playing tennis? He said he went to this few years back. He swung for a ball, and his legs gave out, and he just fell on his face. And they rushed him to the hospital. And he said, doctor... Uh, you know, my legs gave out. What's wrong? And the doctor said, you're fucking 100 years old. Nothing. <laughs> That's called being 100 years old. <laughs> Nothing's wrong. I can't fix 100. Did, did he regale you guys with stories about Keaton and Chaplin and Hitchcock? That's amazing. From the time I met him, he was on St. Elsewhere with me, for those that don't know. Yes, always. Yeah. But here's a guy that worked face-to-face with Charlie Chaplin. It's incredible. Here's a guy that works with Alfred Hitchcock. Here's the guy. And he is, even though he can't play tennis, the most witty, the most, he's he's so with it right now, and he could tell you these stories as if these stories happened yesterday in detail, and it's just amazing, and what a treasure to have somebody that you got to get, you, he won't do the podcast? We asked him twice. I know he's done a handful of them. Well, you've got to make it easy. Are you willing to go to him? Absolutely. We'll send an engineer right to his house. I think the key is don't ask. Yeah? Just show up? Just show up. (laughs) (laughs) Say, can I talk to you for a minute? Dude, with a meal. Yeah. <laughs> of, of course, we're still trying to get Screech from Saved by the Bell to do this. Show. Isn't he incarcerated? Yeah. Is he still in jail? I don't know. Yeah. I Is know. he? <laughs> I know Screech. That was a perfect name for a little skinny Screech yeah. guy Screech in, in prison. Because that must be the sound coming out of the showers now. <laughs> in prison. You want, what is that screech? Do you want to talk? Do you want to talk, Howie, about taking over? You are now the co-owner of of Just for Laughs. Yeah, I'm very excited about good, that. Good. I never dreamed. I never. It's first of all, you know, I got into comedy on a dare, and I was for most of my, you know, I don't have a GED, and I was a ne'er do well, and uh, now it's really hard for me to say, but I am an owner, a partner in a festival. When people cool. say, what do you do? I have a festival. I have a festival. <laughs> I'm, I am in charge of a festival. I'm very festive. I've never heard of any. I've never met anybody that had a festival. But uh, Just for Laughs is the consummate, you know, mecca for everything comedy. Gilbert, you've been there umpteen times. Oh, yeah. And people were discovered there. Tim oh, Allen. Sure. And, oh, sure. And Lots Roseanne of people. And Everybody who's anybody from all over the world has played there. Two million people go through it. it, it uh, it's in Montreal every uh, July. Two million people go through, and now it's expanded. There's a, there's a satellite uh, festival in Toronto, Vancouver, Sydney. And my, uh, my take on what I would like to do is I don't want to change it. Mm-hmm. I just want to make it more known outside of you know, the comedy world. You know, we know, even if you're not really into music, there isn't anybody that's not heard of Coachella. 
and there's not anybody that doesn't know, you know, what Woodstock was. So you want to expand its reach a little bit and its, yeah, and its, I, I and its think visibility? Yeah, I think they haven't, they haven't, you know, as we've, you know, kind of shit on social media now, I want to embrace <laughs> social media. It's not too late. Uh, yeah, I want to embrace, you know, you know that a Coachella, Beyonce, did the, the had the number one rated YouTube performance in the history of YouTube out of Coachella. I just think we have all these comics there. There are so many, you know, whether we embrace Twitch or Twitter Mm-hmm. or Instagram or Facebook Live. There's so many things we could do or combining games, bring, just expand the knowledge that the home of comedy and where it, you know, kind of is celebrated more than any other place in the world is Montreal Good. and is just for laughs. Neil Berkeley, by the way, who we were talking about, who made Gilbert's doc, is doing a show for Amazon called Inside Jokes. I'm in it. And you're in it. Yes. We'll give Neil a plug too. Okay, yes. Which follows hopefuls, seven hopefuls. Yeah, because I think that there is, you know, there was that, what was the movie last year with the guy, the Indian guy who had the wife who got sick? The big sick. The big sick. Yeah. I think the B story was he was trying out to be on JFL. You know, that's that, right. That was the insight. That's, that's right. what he was showcasing for, and that's what he was trying to do. That's right. So it is a known commodity. So and and I, I, our uh, take. So the Amazon has Neil's show. Um, I think we shot something like for international purposes, thirteen different Netflix specials, not necessarily in English, for all over the world. So we just want to launch things out of there internationally, so people go, oh. Kind of like what my template or my analogy is, kind of like what National Lampoon was in the 70s. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Everything that was National Lampoon, whether we know it as a magazine, but you also know National Lampoon's vacation, so it could be movies and specials. That's what JFL should be. Great. I hope that happens. I look forward to that. You have so many cards. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them, to be fair, are left over from the last time. I was in Montreal with Gilbert one time, and we were in a bar. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know the story? I don't know. Go this is the one where we were sitting in a in a restaurant, and it was a Spanish name. I forget what it was. And two women come in, and they're beautiful. And Gilbert goes, "Whoa!" And like five minutes later, three women come in, prettier than the last two. And five minutes later, four women come in, pretty, and it keeps on going. It's like a joke. Like there's just this restaurant of beautiful women. And Gilbert goes, how do we meet them? And I said, buy him a drink. And Gilbert goes, what's plan B? (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) You could have sent some tap water on Gilbert. Tell us one more thing about Blake Edwards, <laughs> if, 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 a, if a funny story comes to mind. Anything? A Blake Edwards story? Yeah. Um, Love Richard Mulligan, too, in that movie. Oh, he was yeah. great. Yeah, it yeah. was a fine You guys mass, are fun. Was, yeah, it was fun. You know, I don't really know uh, how, you know, the movie didn't do well, but it kind of launched me in movies as far as at that time in the 80s. I made a concerted effort to not do any more movies. You work with two comedy icons, Melvin Frank, too. Yeah. As well as, yeah, as Blake like Edwards. But yeah. I didn't enjoy the You process. didn't enjoy the experiences. No. I, I didn't like, uh, Blake Edwards aside, because I was in L.A., I didn't like the idea of going someplace on location for three months, 
doing a uh, a patchwork, you know, each and every day, not getting an immediate response. It made me incredibly neurotic because I never left at the end of the day. Maybe I should have said it like this. Maybe I should have done it like that. And not seeing and not having any control. I'm a control freak, you know, not having any control. And then a year later, it would come out. I just didn't like it wasn't fun sitting in the tra- It was just so slow. It was so isolated. It was so it's it's everything that I hate. Every reason I love everything else I do didn't exist in movie making. I didn't like, it was okay on, on St. Elsewhere because St. Elsewhere I was part of a, uh, an ensemble cast. So I'd come in for, you know, two days a week and three days a week I'd be on the road and I had a couple lines and I did it and it was television and it would, you know, a few weeks later you'd see it on TV right. and You'd have it to sequester yourself for three or four months and you don't a, sit a in a stretch. trailer for right. six hours. Right. You know, you go there and do it. You did a lot of movies, Gilbert. Did oh, you yeah. like, do you like that process? Yeah, it's, um, I, well, I remember, I think Edward G. Robinson said, I don't get paid for the acting. I get, I get paid for waiting around. You know, it's that's funny that he said that. And, and that's how I feel about stand-up comedy. You know, stand-up comedy I do for free. What you're paying me for is to get on a plane, leave L.A. and leave my family and live in a hotel and but my moment that I'm on stage, even if it's an hour, if it's seventy minutes or whatever, that's free. Everything leading to that is a little bit uh, is 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 tough. Stormy Daniels said the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> How did you like doing a sitcom, John? How, was that a, that di- was fun. a difficult transition too? The sitting around uh, coming no, from stand up. I I was the exec producer. Mm-hmm. I was wrote I wrote on it. I and I starred in it. So I, there was, I was constantly was doing something. Was it called something. the second half on NBC? Yes, sure second was. Half, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly busy to the point where um, I would have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to do East Coast radio, and then I would, and then I would uh, have to go to work, and ha- I would have to go to writers' room for a couple of hours and hang out there. Then I have to go on stage, and then I would have to go into. Uh, or, audition period and then I'd have to go into the right on back on stage again then back on that was I, when it when it ended I kind of wanted it to go on because who didn't want it you know it was a, it was a lot of fun but there was also that part of me was going I, I could I, I would have killed myself <laughs> exhaustion I mean I don't know how Seinfeld did it I mean I, I he, his office was next to mine and you know he was shoving down power bars and stuff like that and uh, you know fortunately he had someone great like Larry David to, to, to bounce off of but it was, it was, I mean, it was a beating. It was a serious Interesting. beating. And yeah. I don't understand people who go on vacation, uh, not vacation. I don't understand people who go on location for like two years to shoot a movie. And it's like, you know, it's just out there. And it's like, and then when the movie comes out, it's like, you know, three people see it and it's forgotten about. But even if it's big, you know, I remember... At the time, you and me were going out and we were doing movies and Tom Hanks, he was doing the bachelor party. It was like around the same time. And those were in L.A. and they were easier. But then he had a family, you know, Tom Hanks had a family and he did brilliant uh, Academy Award winning performances. But can you imagine? I wouldn't. And that's why he deserves the the accolades he gets. You know, when what was that one where he was stranded on the island? uh, Castaway. Castaway. You know, he had to, number one, you know, not really dine with his family because he had to lose 
all that weight. Yeah. Then he had to go live for months and months and months. Twice he had to go there because he they shot half the movie before he got stranded. He made another movie. Yeah, he yeah, went well, and did another movie. <laughs> right. So I'm just saying that's a big. He deserves awards and he deserves the accolades because you really have to make a choice that this. You know, for me, comedy is part of my life. For me, hosting is part of my life. For me, festival is part of my life. But first and foremost, for me, and I think for you now, is family. You know, and that's what keeps me sane, and that's what keeps me alive. And um, I've heard you say you, the only place you don't feel anxiety is when you're performing. Well, I I need it. You know, yeah. I said it's my panacea, and whether yeah. it's laughter, it's the the thing is, it's because I got so much shit going on in my head and I suffer from anxiety and depression and things like that, when you're in the moment, when you don't have that much of a plan or when you're on stage and you have to think of the next, you're not thinking or worrying or caring or, you know, and that's the kind of thing that allowed Gilbert more than me to cross the line because you're not thinking. You're engaged. Being in the moment, you're totally engaged and you're not thinking. And it's in those quiet moments when the shit hits the fan and you're not doing anything that it's really hard to cope. You both agree with that? Is that the most well, peaceful time on stage? Uh, for me, every time's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I feel miserable flying to the job. You do. feel miserable on stage. You feel miserable, feel miserable on stage off. in the moment? Oh, but you know what I, I was thinking when you were saying how the quiet moments, it's like, is there anything more sadder and depressing and suicidal than lying in bed in the middle of the night. No, that's yeah. what I'm saying. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. After no. a gig specifically? Or just no. in general. No, uh-huh. quiet general. is there. not, there's nothing going, so there's nothing going on around you. It's like, uh, you know, they, the people go in, they say it's really good that people who meditate, they go into that, uh, uh, what, what do you call those tubes that they go in, they lie oh, in the, the dark and they float? Oh, uh, yeah, right. But that's what night. Sensory deprivation. But that's what night feels like. So when it's dark, and when it's quiet, and when I'm not sleeping, which is I have trouble with, so what happens? Nothing good. Nothing good happens in my head. But if I'm on stage... <laughs> John you know, agrees. I live alone. <laughs> At least he can get into a fight with his wife, go, hey, you're fat tonight. And she'll go, fuck you, and they'll argue for an hour and a half. I got to yell at me for fucking nine hours. <laughs> but I, I, So that on stage, even if you're doing what you've done a million times, you got to think about what you're going to do next. you got to do that. It's an easier time, is it not? Yeah, I well, it's 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 so funny all the thoughts that happen to you when you're on stage where you're going, oh, now I go this next this next part of the joke never quite works, right? Yeah. But but that <laughs> but that busyness that's going on in your head is easier for you to um, survive, yes, than lying in bed with. No, you've got oh, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's So horrible. people would say when you're off work, if I'm lying in bed and I got no responsibility but just to lie here, that is hard to survive. But standing there in front of a couple of hundred or a couple thousand strangers thinking this next piece probably doesn't work and doesn't work, that's an easier, comfortable place for everybody. And, you know, I, I just, this is a different topic. But it's funny because, you know, Frank comes to you with all like a billion index cards <laughs> and his writing looks like it was a professional print place that yes. did it. 
And, I've never and, seen anybody like personally have a font. And, and <laughs> thank you, Howie. And and like the first time we had you on the podcast, I had like two crumpled pieces of paper. Yeah, like it was a grocery list. And, yeah, yeah, and and I could barely make it out. It was like it would be like hot water and stuff like, and it was misspelled and sloppy. And I was having. And this is what always stuck with me, because uh, I guess it's mental illness, too. Uh, you you looked at Frank's notes, and you looked at mine, and... Yours were more like mine. Yeah. You looked at this, and you said, see, this makes total sense to me. Well, you use the term mental illness, and I call it mental health. I don't think we're ill. I think that whatever our health is... You know, it's like you have to, and this is the, uh, you know, this is my little soapbox. You know, I don't think there's anybody alive. You know, we talk about it out loud and maybe we act out loud in a way that allows people to say, you know, this guy's insane. This guy's crazy. This guy doesn't have a line that he won't step over. This guy, you know, is, is inappropriate. The truth is there isn't anyone alive that doesn't need coping skills. And until we, you know, recognize that and make that part of our curriculum, until we are comfortable and and we have humility and we can make that our mental health as important as our dental health, like people go, you send your kids every year to go get a checkup, look, no cavities. Nobody is sent to just answer questions as a five-year-old, as a six-year-old and all this shit we're dealing with in life. You know, they're taking away jobs from people like you and me and people are complaining about you and me and they always look for another thing or they complain about guns it's mental health mental health is the answer to every single problem in this world when people become fanatical about whether they're the religion when they become angry when they become depressed when depending on how you're dealing with a relationship, the breakup of a relationship, how do you deal coping with raising children? How do you cope with productivity? You know, how do you, that could be a coping skill that Frank has. There's five <laughs> million fucking cards in front of him. I've never saw, the, the, when he put out these notes, I said, I'll do a podcast. This is, a, I don't know if he was considering doing a 24-hour Howie Mandel. Well, there get, aren't even that many questions. I've been in this business for 40 years. I have not been asked that many questions that you have written down. Well, these on give questions. me options. If you want to talk about saying elsewhere, we go over there. If you want to talk about... Uh, the movies we can, we can do that. Uh, famous, you know, you, you have issues. With. I know, you know, and, know. and it's organization. I also over prepare, right? Just in case. But we all have our things. That's it. You know, if it wasn't for mental health, if it wasn't for comedy, we would have been dead forty years ago. Oh yeah, definitely. The ter first time you walked into Catch a Rising Star, I'll bet you got a hard on like you never had before. <laughs> yeah, that was a clubhouse. That was your place where yes. holy shit, I belong someplace. And that's what kept you alive. All these, me, him, that was, that was the, the safest place we'd ever been. We never fit in any place else before. And this, for the first time in our fucking life, we can say all that crazy shit in our head and get away with it. In, in my profound. early days at the clubs, I remember thinking, you know, if they could, if I could get on at every one of the clubs a few times a night and do it the entire night. I dreamt about that. I thought I would do that. If I know. The clubs were 24 hours a day. 
I would go and perform 24 hours. I thought the same way, and I still kind of still do that. I'll drop in on the clubs. You know that. You've been with me, and I need to be there. And it was never, uh, you know, I'm very lucky, and I've had some success, and people, and I've got, you know, some notoriety, and people pay me. But the truth of the matter is, that's not, I didn't give a shit. And when I showed up, I just wanted stage time. I just wanted to do that. And if nobody knew who I was, it, I swear to you, it wouldn't matter. And if nobody was giving me a paycheck, it wouldn't matter. I'd be happy being a waiter all day and being able to go all night and stand on stage and have people laugh and kind of relate to what I'm saying. As long as you didn't have to hang out with yourself. <laughs> I just don't want to go afterwards yeah, and lie like right, Gilbert alone exactly. in the dark. <laughs> Thank God all you guys found an outlet. <laughs> And survived. Yeah. Howie plugs. Deal or no deal. America's got talent. HowieMandel.com. Yes. Deal or no deal is the big thing now. It's going to premiere December 3rd on NBC. The biggest. It's a holiday special. It hasn't been on for 10 years, and we've got a big holiday special. And then it moves to CNBC starting December 3rd. But December 5th is the first one. So watch that. Proofy. John, anything to plug? No. <laughs> we had to ask. You made the trip. You get it. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Last thing you, is, you uh, should say you're working on a special in Holland. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Yes, I'm working on a special in Holland. <laughs> <laughs> Last things, just for fun, Gilbert trivia. You and Howie both played the same character, the same fictional character. You know who it is? Was it Mistress Picklick? Very good. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> yes, we did. Very good. And so I guess we got our. That's it. Okay. Well, you know, it... by the way, before you forget, <laughs> you, you you fucking cost me a fortune. How? Oh, let's hear this. What? One night he's he's talking to Deirdre in a comedy club and 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 I said I'm dating that girl and he goes she's crazy don't get away from her don't 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 stay away from her I married her and had two kids with her and every so often you would pop into my fucking head going walk away walk away <laughs> so, so can I replug my dates go yes, yes, December fifth December third yes that's where I was doing it backwards. December 3rd, it's on NBC. We'll get this episode A big episode holiday up. special. Just in time. So right before that. Okay. Put this up December 2nd. You bet. Okay. <laughs> December 3rd. it's not a Monday. It's a, oh, it's Monday? <laughs> we only put the show up Monday. Is but it, we, it what, we'll when talk. is, is that a Monday? We got it worked out. So if it's next week, what is December 3rd? What day of the week is that? So next Monday. Yep. Next Monday, a week today on NBC after 10 years, December 3rd, you got to watch it. Deal or no deal, it's a holiday special. And then you watch at the end of that, it'll tell you December 5th, it comes on on CNBC. You bet, buddy. Thank you. You got it. Gilly? Well, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. Once again, recorded at Earwolf with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. And this would have been a good interview if John Mendoza had kept his mouth shut and couldn't <laughs> just try to take over every fucking second of the show. Anyway. Sorry. We've, <laughs> we've been talking uh, to our pal, the great Howie Mandel. Thanks, gents. I've dropped the great for my name. 
Thanks for coming in. I never got well, to my no, real I life sea monkeys card. I late how he meant that. <laughs> Thanks, fellas. Thank you. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 